Aloha, and welcome to the Green Divas Radio Show. You're on with Green Diva Meg. And Green Diva Lynn. Aloha. Yeah, and right now, while this is airing, we are in the Big Island of Hawaii, on the Big Island of Hawaii. We might be ziplining right now. Yeah, you know, or we could be doing yoga. We've got a very um, peaced out week here. So... We're not going to dawdle too much. We really want to introduce you to this fabulous show so we can get back to yoga or volcano jumping or whatever the heck we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had an opportunity to speak to Sue Reinerd, and that's going to – we're doing a very special Green Divas Heart Wildlife because I had no idea how in danger our migratory songbirds were in, how much uh, – decline they are suffering so anyway she's done a documentary called songbird sos that lynn found out about mm-hmm. yay lynn uh so anyway It'll tug at your heartstrings yeah it, it does I mean, who doesn't love songbirds right i mean yeah what's not what's the lo- morning without hearing the, the birds singing well so consider uh and she does have solutions it's not completely hopeless so good, good, yeah. Um, it's it's really a good interview. Our feature is with the fabulous Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist, and she was featured in Years of Living Dangerously. Mm-hmm. In particular, the episode that we had spoken to uh, Anna Jane Joyner and uh, some of our other friends. She is really such a great uh, has such a great personality and an easy way of explaining what's happening and. She is also upbeat and really focuses on solutions and uh, how we can adjust to what's happening and be aware of how, how we can slow down the process. Yeah, that's very important. And, of course, we have our Green Diva Alley in the garden. And I think it's October stuff she's talking about, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What we need to do in our the garden. October to-do list. Exactly. Uh, and then a foodie file, because of course, you know, Green Divas always have to have something about food. We're, we're probably eating some really good food right now, too. <sighs> a poo-poo platter, no doubt. A poo-poo platter. <laughs> it's kind of cracking me up that we're going to be celebrity judges for the poo-poo palooza. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I, I guess we're going to be pretty full. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Jared from Clean Plates uh, does a really fun segment about finding healthy food and um so without further ado anything else we should tell the lovely people while we're trapped in paradise uh sorry i was busy cleaning my grass skirt <laughs> what did you say <laughs> uh, well i'm uh, shaking it shake it baby <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're having way too much fun. So everybody, aloha, mahalo, and enjoy the rest of the show. Mahalo. The Green Divas love food. Organic, local, fresh, whole, delicious food. Here now is another Green Diva foodie file. Hey, everybody. Um, Today we're talking to an old friend of ours from the Green Divas we haven't talked to in a while, Jared Koch, who's the founder of Clean Plates. And if you haven't heard of Clean Plates, 
you want to know about clean plates because you know what? Green Divas and Dudes, just we're foodies and we should uh, know about clean plates. So tell us, Jared. Hi. Tell us a little bit about clean plates and how people can find it. Sure. Hi. How are you doing? So uh, best way, to, <laughs> good to hear. So best <laughs> way, best way to find us is at cleanplates.com. Uh, and best way to engage with us is to subscribe to our to our email, and we also have uh, iPhone app. Basically, what we do is kind of the whole mission of the company is just to make it easy and enjoyable for people to eat clean, better for you food that also tastes good. So we we kind of classify ourselves as clean eating foodies. Um, we don't want to sacrifice the experience of eating, the pleasure of eating, but we very much care about the quality of the food that we're putting in our body and where it comes from, how it affects us personally, and also, of course, how it affects the environment. And so, more specifically, how we do it, we currently do it in a few different ways, but we we started as a, a guide to healthy and sustainable restaurants, and we still do that with print and digital versions. We do that in right now in New York and L.A. and are planning on expanding uh, across the country to multiple cities. And then we also, on our email and, and our website, we, we really curate the best products that are out there, recipes, services. So really everything is just designed to find the latest and greatest for the lifestyle so just to make it easier for people to be able to, to live it and eat this way. And we try to take away any excuse people have to, uh, to not eat this way. Well, I really appreciated it because as a busy green diva, um, you know, I often do eat out or I'm traveling or I'm in the city and you, your initial book was The Green Plates in New York City and I actually kept that book with me all the time. I had it in my, my bag or my purse or whatever um, and depending where I was, I would look up like, okay, this is where we want to go because yeah. I know and Jared says and your team or whoever, your researchers, but to me it was Jared. Um, yeah. Jared said, you know, and I and and it was really easy to understand. Like they served vegan, the prices were reasonable. Um, blah blah blah. They have organic. They do local. All those different things. And I think it's nice to think that. Gee, I'm going to prepare all my food, and I'm going to do this whole, you know, fantastic homey kitchen thing all the time. But that's not reality for me, uh, and for many people. So I think it's a brilliant idea. Because I don't want to compromise when I'm out there. You know, when it, when we learn, you know, uh, you know, because you do this, you start to learn things that, you know, like the, the kinds of pesticides that are just showered all over strawberries, right? That's one yeah. of those things you just don't want to eat. Uh, that's in the dirty dozen, right? That EWG, yeah. Environmental Working Group does. And so when I'm out, I'm like looking at my plate going, geez, they look really good. But like, you know, yeah. bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and you know while it isn't going to kill me necessarily now that i know it's very hard to do right no absolutely you want to feel good about the food you're putting in your body and, and like you said once once you have a better understanding more awareness once you commit to eating this way it's, you don't you want to do it as much as possible i mean i'm not i'm a big believer and you know there's no such thing as perfection and um right. so you can't do it all the time, but you want to do it as much as possible. And, and you want to, you know, you want to feel good about the food you're putting in your body. So especially if you're going to a restaurant, you're paying a lot of money for a meal. You don't want to feel like, oh, I'm eating this and, and like be worrying the whole time. It's just, you know, it does not make for a pleasant experience. And so, no. and the good news is that there's just 
more and more chefs and restaurants that really care about this as well and are really doing a good job sourcing and making sure you know and really meeting the demand for better quality food. Well, and that's the other aspect I was thinking that if we do vote with our dollars and we are trying to um, get producers to make to make you know to support local farmers so they produce more and and let people let the manufacturers and producers know we do want organic clean food and so why not go to those restaurants that are doing this and support them in their efforts to help um, you know further this uh, this this way of being? No, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think obviously there's a lot of systemic problems with the food supply and and the you know the that need to be addressed, whether it's politically or you know on a systemic level. But it all really starts from from us as individuals, from the consumers really demanding this and supporting the, the companies and the organizations that are, like, at least attempting to do a good job. And, right. Uh, you know, I think it just, and I've seen it over the years, just how, how it's, you know, exponentially growing. And it, it does make a difference the more we can, you know, not only just for our own personal health, but just from a movement standpoint and really contributing to change. It's, it's so important to support these people that are all a part of the movement. Well, speaking of change, I really, I think it's been at least three years since we've spoken. How long has it been? You were just starting the first book, I think. Yeah, it's been about three years. So my question is, is I I believe things have shifted an awful lot in those three years, not just for clean plates or the green divas, but doing what we do, we see some of the changes. What what are you seeing happen out there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm very optimistic because of it. I agree with you. It's been really large shifts, I think, you know, in two ways. One, just the more and more people are concerned about this, care about this, um, are, are doing, you know, eating this way, making these choices. So I think that's just, you know, very positive. And also because of that, and, you know, those People are just people, and those a lot of those same people are shifting careers and 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 yeah. want to do something that related to their passion, and you know, like we were saying, specific to the restaurant industry, but also just in the consumer product industry, and it's just there's just growth all around, and um, there's so much, so many more services that are like even delivering, um, you know, farmers market foods are like directly from farm to your house, and there's just so much going on in the space, which is. Which is really, you know, just changing things it's on a, a fabulous level. It's really fabulous. It's yeah. a fabulous time to be a foodie. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to because I'm hoping that we'll get to talk to you, you know, more, and we'll, we'll zero in on a couple of topics because I know you're a foodie like us, and you're out there and you're gathering information that we aren't necessarily gathering, and it's it's really interesting. So, uh, folks, really tell us again um, the URL so they can go visit Clean Plates. It's www.cleanplates.com, so clean plates with an S at the end, .com. And if you live in L.A. or New York, you must get the books, get the latest one, get the latest version, and I know you probably always have new ones coming out. Yep. Yeah, and our 2015 ones are coming out in October of 2014. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, no, it's great. And yeah. then, like, and if you're not in L.A. and New York, like I was saying earlier, we have uh, an email publication with really great content that's all the recipes and products and just advice and information. So it's, it's great to sign up for that as well. 
Definitely. Well, thank you for catching up a little bit, Jared, and I'll look forward to more coming soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Hope you're hungry. For more easy and delicious recipes and even more foodie information, go to thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Wishing you had a green thumb or want to learn more about sustainable gardening outdoors and in? Expert green divas and dude gardeners share tips for everything from composting to growing herbs in your kitchen. Listen to the Green Divas Green Thumb for low-stress gardening tips. Yay, it's time for our Garden Fun and October to-do list with our Green Diva, Allie Hoffman. Hi, Allie. Hi, Meg. So what are we doing now in October? Not that it's not sort of obvious, but I know you always come up with such cool stuff that I don't think of. Well, I'm just going to limit this to a couple of things to do in October other than enjoying the crisp weather and eating apples and the sun. Mm. Uh, what you want to, and while you're looking at beautiful foliage, what you want to do in October, I think, is a soil test. Huh. See? And I wouldn't have you, thought of that. I'm going to tell you a soil test, I and mean, then I'm going to tell you to repair your lawn which everyone's going to tell you. And the other thing you can do is plant trees and shrubs and spring flowering bulbs. Right. So what, as far as the soil test is concerned, it's ideal to test in the fall your vegetable garden or perennial area or even your lawn. Huh. You take a soil sample, which you can find the instructions for taking a soil sample properly in your county extension office and guidelines, which should be online and easy to find. Right. Okay. So anyway, regional, whatever your community, regional. Okay. Right. And you send the, usually they'll give you the uh, information of where they have to send it to. I, the one I use costs $20 to send it in and okay. get the results. And they tell you how to amend your soil. Right. So, so, so it's not too pH or, or the pH balance has to be correct, right? It tells you the pH and it tells you if you're missing any nutrients and anything that you might have too much of. So instead of just applying things to your garden or your lawn that you may or may not need, which can be dangerous for the environment and expensive, you can pinpoint exactly what it is you need. So if you have a vegetable garden and you happen to need calcium, it'll tell you to apply. You need it, and here's how much to apply. So, so for it's very helpful. So my tomatoes that were having that weird uh, stuff going on, which you assessed was probably lack of calcium. Right. I could have avoided that if I was to check my... Now I bought, you know, I bought an organic soil mix and then I mixed in my compost mix which, you know, maybe I put too right. too much of the compost mix and it, it reduced the the kind of balance that the organic mix had. I don't think so. Probably what happened was inconsistent watering. If you got if you still got blossom end rot and you had wonderful soil 
which it's kind of impossible to do too much compost. Right. So it's probably with something like inconsistent watering, or if you got a lot of rain and then not very much rain, it's that's one of the things that can cause that. Yeah. But um, okay. But in general, that this is a good time of year to do it. Okay. You know, I've never See? done that. I've never. I've always thought, gee, I should probably do that, and I never have. It's easy. It's not expensive, and it's really good for the environment because you're not throwing a bunch of stuff. In your, on your soil that you don't need. Right, right. Okay. And and the other thing you can do is uh, you want, you know, you ordered some bulbs back in August that you were going to plant in this for spring flowering. Right. And those bulbs have arrived and you've been keeping them dry and cool. And now you're going to plant them in October. Okay. And... Uh, you're also going to take this time to plant trees and shrubs because all of them will have a few weeks, even though it might be getting cold outside, they still have a few weeks to get their roots established. Okay. And because the soil stays warm for quite a while. Now, in terms of bulbs, anything particular you um, hints for the best type of or any, uh, what's, what am I looking for? You know, tips for planting tulips or daffodils or anything? Well, I live in an area where I have lots of critters. I have deer and I have chipmunks and yeah. voles and everything else. So yeah. I plant things that they don't eat. They don't eat daffodils. They don't eat hyacinths. They don't eat grape hyacinths. And there are other small flowering bulbs that they won't eat. They may, if you put tulips out, you're pretty much assuring that the squirrels and the chipmunks are going to eat them. Yeah, and so, you know, we we do pretty well, and we do have a lot of critters, but I don't know if we might have some kind of species tulips that, that maybe aren't as attractive. I don't know. That's, that's true. The species tulips may not be, and also the species tulips are going to re-bloom more reliably. Yeah. But you could also plant them in a in a wire mesh box, which is fairly easy to do, and huh. that will deter them. They won't be able to get to them. Now, will they re- re-bloom happily from that wire mesh box? Uh, they will, if, depending on the type of tulips and where you live. Okay. All right. In this part of the country, in Chicago, you pretty much, if you want the big, beautiful tulips, you pretty much need to plant them every year. If you plant species and, tulips, you're more likely to get a repeat bloom. Now, do they you? Don't, they the, don't really like our soil. Okay. We we have. I'm pretty sure they're species because they come back here, and we have the same thing where you really need to to replant for the most part. Now, when you replant, let's say something like a regular tulip bulb, do you lift the bulb when it's done and store it, uh, you know, out of the soil and replant it that way, or do you actually start with new bulbs? No, I would start with new bulbs. Boy, that's a lot of work, man. It is, but that's why I plant daffodils. <laughs> they they do something called naturalize, which is that yes. they make new bulbs, and I don't have to do anything. I or love Stella that. Or or it, glory no, in the of the snow, and things like that. Narcissus and the crocus, but um, right. 
Unless you have a landscaper that doesn't understand what they are, because I spent, I had this one field in this one house that we took a few years and it really propagated. It was beautiful, full of daffodils. And before they bloomed, he mowed them all down. Oh, yikes. I fired him. I did. Don't be messing with my tulips, man. Or I mean my daffodils, my daffies. Anyway, well, that's good. So I think this is all really good, and I think maybe this year I'll I'll get my soil checked out. I think that would be a great idea. It's easy to do, and you will benefit from it. And it's very green. It is. Well, Allie, thank you so much. And I know, as always, you will have a wonderful post up for us with all these details, tips, and resources. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meg. Inspired to grow more organic stuff? We are. To learn more about this Green Diva's Green Thumb episode and all kinds of other great green information, visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Green Diva's Heart Wildlife. Who can resist all those videos and images of adorable baby animals? But sometimes these adorable creatures really need our help. Let's celebrate wild animals, learn about them, and do what we can to help them. Well, I am really interested to speak to Sue Reinhardt, who is a filmmaker and director of an upcoming documentary called Songbird, Songbird SOS, which I saw the trailer and I almost wanted to cry just from the trailer. And some of it's just beautiful and some of it's just a little upsetting and scary. Um, the film is about the decline of migratory birds. And if you really haven't heard some of the statistics, you will be stunned. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking at, at your site, and, and of course, I looked at the trailer, and I am somewhat aware of some of uh, the statistics, but really, they were stunning what I saw. It looked like some of my favorite songbirds and the common birds that we all know of, um, you know, it was like the average was like 70 something percent uh, decline since 68 or 1970. Right? Yes. yes. And that is uh, definitely uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to make this film. Um, I, uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a, a person. I like birds. I didn't, you know, I know a little bit about them, backyard feeder, that kind of thing, when I started this project. And for me, what happened was I kind of noticed that there was over, you know, over many years that there was birds that I wasn't seeing anymore. Right. And I thought it was just me. I don't, you know, I don't get out in nature enough anymore. I'm too busy. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not looking up anymore. Sad, and then right? I actually read a book um, by a woman, Bridget Stutchbury, and it, called, it was called Silence of the Songbirds. And she laid it out and I just thought, oh my God, it's, it's not me. I'm not missing it it's happening we're losing the birds it's not not the fact that i'm just not seeing them they are really disappearing yeah but you know i mean i just got a totally side note here that whole concept that we are disconnecting from nature so you didn't trust yourself Mm -hmm. 
enough to know whether they were there or not. And I just really, um, uh, you know, we all obviously you've become more aware of it from from pursuing this concept in this film, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm just always striving to like make sure that I sit outside and look for the birds and look up and see the sky or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, but it is upsetting when you do notice this kind of stuff. And then, first of all, I would want to be in denial. I don't even want to believe this is happening. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, that goes back to you described the trailer as beautiful and scary, and I think the film is is that too. We we strive to kind of capture that there is beauty and there are reasons to care. Um, and at the same time, we are in a, in a really difficult and, and frightening situation. Yeah. Yeah. And now, so in making this film, how challenging was it? Well, you're, you're a, you've done other nature type um, filmography before. You're a director. I've seen that you work with National Geographic. So you must have some... Uh, experience and and understanding of you know the, the challenges of filming nature, but how was it filming birds? Well, I I will say I I um, I've made films. I have an interest in ecology, so I've made work along that lines before. But I've never made a film quite like this one. It was very challenging. I bet. Um, the way we mostly captured the birds was by following the scientists. So the film sets out to to really understand why why the birds are disappearing and right. what it means. Yeah. And the way we did that was by finding people, individuals, um, who are really looking to you know unravel that mystery. You know. Mm. Um, and so we we uh, shot in different places, actually all over the world, because this is something that's happening all over the world. Right. And I met some uh, truly amazing people, and. Back to the question of how we filmed the birds. In many cases, because they were studying birds, it kind of opened that door for us. It gave us a place that they would say, "Okay, this is the work we're doing, and right. we'll be, you know, netting a bird here, or or these birds come here at a certain time." Right. And that was really, really, really necessary and useful because songbirds are things that we hear and we don't necessarily always see. Yeah. We're aware of their presence, but it's not like you have this, you know, wonderful vision <laughs> of a bird every day. I mean, they are right. more present around us than actually in our sight. So it certainly is a, a challenge to capture them on film. Yeah, and they're small and they're fast. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, please tell me that the wrens, I had this one little wren that I swear used to come visit me personally. I took it personally. but used to come and perch on my bathroom window in the morning and sing. Aww. Like every morning, and I, I please tell me the wrens aren't in terrible danger. I can't say for sure what yeah. what kind of wren you have. Oh yeah, but me I either. would say most of the songbirds are in decline. Yeah, they're all in decline to various degrees. We have a wonderful shot in the film of this winter wren singing in the boreal forest, and and it's got this amazing song. But then the the tragedy is that the boreal forest, which is you know the breeding bird nursery of north america it's where many birds go to breed and reproduce and Mm -hmm. replenish their numbers there's so much industrial development happening in the boreal that there's this uh impacts them on on multiple levels levels so so yeah so (laughs) so when you think of when you think of you say the wren i just think of this image of this poor little bird singing you know trying to drown out in in oil refinery right (laughs) right that's a lot of work man yeah 
Now, one one of the topics that always really stunned me a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, we did a segment on light pollution mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. dangerous and damaging and devastating it is to birds because mm-hmm. of the shifting night lights and then buildings that keep their lights on and the birds get confused and they fly into them. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you cover in the film at all? Yes. Oh. We definitely look at... Uh, many of the reasons why uh, we're losing the birds. Um, And there's two things that you just mentioned. One is that uh, migrating birds, songbirds migrate mostly at night. Right. Just something I didn't know when I started this project. I wouldn't have known that, I don't think. Yeah, Yeah, they they migrate at night, um, and they come down in the day where that's where we'll see them, like they forage and rest and and eat in the day, and then they carry on their journey, and they fly at night. Um, And... The cues they use to migrate, they use many, many different things, but some of them are, you know, the moon, celestial bodies, things like that. And the thing with artificial light is that it's so much stronger and so much more powerful than many of these cues. It can be very disorienting. It can suck kind of, for lack of a better term, like suck them into a city. Um, We have two stories in our film. One is set in New York on the September 11th. Memorial and lights, um, where they shine t- these massive beams of light into yes. the sky. And yes, yes, I live, I see them from here every yeah, once in a while. It's yeah. a wonderful project, a wonderful, wonderful sculpture. But the an, an adverse effect, an unintended effect, is that birds are attracted to those lights. It's like moths to a right, flame. right, right. Because you know, they, it's it's bigger than the moon. It's brighter than these things that they're using to yeah. find their way. Well, it's more prominent to them, right? Yes, yes. So. So there are scientists who, um, one, for example, a fellow we worked with, Andrew Farnsworth, they're actually working uh, with the people who put on that light display to ensure that birds aren't injured. Aww. And we have that story in, in the film. It's quite wonderful. Oh, that's great. To, yeah, they actually have worked uh, so that they'll, if they, they monitor the birds and if they are getting caught in the beams, if they are getting attracted to the light, where they can, you know, they'll just fly around in the beam until they die, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they'll actually shut the sculpture down and, and let them go. And, and the other story in rela- relation to what you were saying is um, in Toronto we filmed with an organization called FLAP, which is the Fatal Light Awareness Program. Right. And it was founded by a fellow named Michael Mazur. And these are these wonderful volunteers who go, they get up at 5 in the morning during migration season and they go out to the city just at dawn, just when the sun is coming up. And they... They look for the birds that have been injured or killed in collisions with buildings because, again, the bright lights of the city attract the birds yeah. and confuse them. Yeah. Um, and they rehabilitate any bird that they can find that, that is in a condition, uh, healthy wow. enough to be rehabilitated. Yeah, and then they document the rest. And there's an amazing story here because through that documentation, which they've been doing for 20 years, there actually was a legal court challenge uh, in Ontario recently, and they were able to use these, this documentation of all these dead birds to prove, um, you know, that that buildings are harmful. And there's actually been, uh, there was a change, a court precedent that wow. that made for a change in the law. Um, well, that's encouraging. And now encouraging. owners have to show that they're doing due diligence to uh, not have this occur. Well, that is extremely encouraging. I mean, really, seriously, for a thousand reasons, do we need to have lights on on tall buildings all night? I mean, I guess maybe one at the top to deter 
planes, I don't know, or whatever, to let planes know that it's there. Uh, but does the whole building need to be lit up all night long? No. Uh, and yeah. the other, the other, I mean, this, and I can't remember the statistic, but the number of birds that die every year because of the, just this light pollution. No, it's billions. It's it's very upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> it's very upsetting. Say, yeah. And, you know, someone, I just learned that there's a, disease killing deer in new jersey it's already right. there's it's similar to the white snout or whatever's hurting the bats yes. in new jersey yes well that you know that's interesting and i don't know that much but i i will say something that i believe the bats white nose syndrome is related um to an immune disorder yeah and something that is affecting the immune system of bees yes is the neonicotinoid poison. Yes. And the neonicotinoid, I know it's a hard word to say, <laughs> the neonicotinoid pesticides, we also cover that in our film. Oh, we good. We did an amazing story with this scientist called Christy Morrissey, and she works in the prairies in Saskatchewan, Canada. And she's doing a study that will prove that there's a link between those pesticides and the death of many tree swallows, um, oh. which are a songbird that eat insects. And the reason why that's happening um, is because, I mean, neonicotinoids and the reason why they're kind of a revolutionary pesticide is because instead of spraying them on the field, like that image we see of a you know right. a tractor going out and spraying, they're actually coated right on the seed. Yeah. And then the idea is that it grows into the soil and the plant takes it up with it as it grows. So yeah. it's a systemic pesticide. It's like in the DNA of the plant. Yes. And the idea is that this is its kind of a good idea if you were, you know, trying to invent a better way to do pesticides than spraying it all over. But the what they didn't realize is that it would have all these other impacts. Right. And one of them is that it if it, it doesn't always stay where it's supposed to. And right. when it rains and when there's water involved in growing, which you can't have a crop without water, right. it goes into the water and it runs off, and it collects in ponds and things like that. And what happens in ponds and little puddles and all that is that's where insects are born. That's where yeah. they have the larval stage. Yeah. So essentially, it, the pesticide is running off the plants. It's going into the, uh, running off the seeds, actually, and going into the water. And then um, the, it's harming insects that aren't the target insects. They're not the ones that the, you right. know, the pesticide manufacturer is trying to kill. They're trying to kill some other crop insects that's <laughs> yeah. way far away. But because it's traveled, it's, it's, it's affecting this other group of insects. And that's, these insects are the food supply for the birds. Yeah. So what's actually happening is they're breaking the food chain. Oh, dear. And when we do something that drastic, I mean, you can't do something like that to nature. If we break that food chain, anything above that break is in danger of extinction. Right. Yeah, so between the bees and the bats and the pollinator issues and the birds, which are also pollinators, uh, you know, uh, and the deer, it just seems like there is this sudden red flags popping up everywhere that species are becoming ill, you know, they're becoming ill, and uh, I think we should be alarmed. I agree. Without panicking. I agree, and that's why... (laughs) I know, that's why we're making this film. And um, to take you to another example, uh, coffee Uh. is something. And I'm going to tell a little bit about this because there are solutions and there are ways that we Mm. can help. 
Um, I mean, the neonicotinoids, Good. I mean, you're going to have to write a letter to someone. Yeah. But, but there are other things in, that we can do, and one of them is, is, um, is to choose which coffee we drink and why. Yeah. And we, did, we filmed in Costa Rica with this another amazing woman, <laughs> um, Alejandra Martinez Salinas, and she's working in um, an organization called CATIE, that's the acronym, and what she's doing is, is research on sustainable agriculture. And one of the, the crops, I mean, coffee is a huge crop around the world. The world actually drinks 500 billion cups of coffee a year. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> a lot. We consume a lot. Um, and most of it's grown in the sun. And so you think of a landscape. It doesn't have trees. It's just a giant open field. And in order to grow that way, it's an industrial agriculture model, you have to have a lot of pesticides, and you have to, you know, you have no other plants. They just need the sun. All the trees are chopped down. So it used to be a forest. It used to be a natural environment, but it's right. not. Yeah. But there is an alternative. There is a way to grow coffee in the shade. Yep. And if you do that, there's two incredible benefits. One is that you can have trees and trees and shrubs and, you know, different types of other vegetation around the coffee. And two, you can have birds, and the uh, birds will actually do a job for you. They'll eat the insects, and they'll act as a natural pest control. Yeah, so there, what's, that's a win-win right there. Cause, yes. uh, so yeah. if you can find coffee that's shade-grown and even better organic, and even better, there's actually um, bird cer- bird-friendly certified coffee. Really? Yes, and there's a place, I, it, I think it's right near you guys, Birds and Beans it's called, that <laughs> um, actually sells coffee that they can guarantee is grown in these environments that's healthy for us and healthy for birds. I mean, you can do a lot with just, you know, something you do every single day, which is drink a cup of coffee. Yeah, why not? One habit, it's going to help a lot. Wow. I am so impressed. And and I love learning about the solutions. And uh, I'm sure there are lots more. And I'm really looking forward to when is the film coming out? We are still working on the film. Um, we shot the film over the course of a year, uh, mostly because birds have different cycles and different sure. things that happen no, during a, you know, a whole year. Yeah. So we just finished shooting in the spring. We're editing. In fact, I, sh- I was in the edit suite. I just have ducked out to uh, speak to you on the phone. <laughs> um, we should be done by Christmas. And then oh. what we want to do is have the film out there on time for spring migration, yeah. and hopefully you'll be able to see it. And we'll definitely... We, you know, we have a website, um, www.songbirdsos.com, and people can go and sign up to get newsletters so we can tell you when the film's out and when it might be coming uh, somewhere near you. Well, and we'll talk to you again when the film is coming out, and we'll help, great. help promote it and, and the wonderful work you're doing on behalf of our beautiful birds. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Sue, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you. In the meantime, um, Sue site, the uh, songbirdsos.com, has a lot of information, and you can go see the trailer. I really highly recommend it. And um, until then, thanks, Sue. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you do this show. It's wonderful. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Green Divas Heart Wildlife. Please visit thegreendivas.com, that's T-H-E, greendivas.com, to learn more about wildlife, 
nature, and a whole lot more. Green Divas get to talk to so many inspiring people, who each in their own way is helping us find a deeper shade of green. Here's just one of them. Enjoy. Well, if you haven't watched the Years of Living Dangerously uh, series, first of all, go watch it. Find it. I know it's available on DVD, but check out episode four in particular. It's a really, really interesting episode for many reasons, but not the least of which is one of the women in there, um, Catherine Hayhoe, plays a pivotal role, I think. And um, I'm not going to tell you too much more. I'm going to let her talk about it. But she is a climate scientist, a communicator, an educator. She's an author, a professor, a consultant. Um, she does so many things. And wow, is she so relevant right now, especially with folks like me. I'm not a scientist. She helps me understand what is happening and, and, and explains it in English. Hi, Catherine. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm just thrilled that, that we're getting a chance to speak to you. And I, I had mentioned the years because we had originally spoken to Anna, Anna Jane Joyner uh, and Marianne Hitt, um, both who were in that episode with you. We haven't talked to Ian Summerholder yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> uh, but you had your work cut out for you. They really challenged you, didn't they? Yes. Well, Anna Jane specifically brought me in to talk to her dad um, because her dad is the head of a big Christian ministry and is pretty firmly convinced that climate change isn't real, drawing a lot on both his experience with meteorology as a pilot, he's a, he's a well, very well-skilled pilot pilot, as well as basically all things that the people around him are saying, that you can't be a Christian and think climate change is real. You can't be Republican. You can't be conservative. You can't even be a sensible person and say that climate change is real. And, of course, all those are completely false. Right, right. And I – sadly, I, I don't think you really convinced him. And I was shocked because I thought, you know, listen, I, 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 how could you not be convinced by you? I thought you were <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> well, thank you. And I think, though, that he really illustrated – and that episode you were talking about really illustrates the fact that with, with some people, when we actually start to argue the facts of climate change, when we actually get into the how do we know it's warming, how do we know it's humans, why do we think this is a serious problem we have to do something about, when we get into actually talking about real data and real information and real facts, it causes them to double down. Yeah. Because the real reason they're opposed to it is not because of data right. or facts. right. It's because of their ideology. And yeah. so the more data and facts you throw at them, the more they double down, the, the, the deeper they dig their trench. Yeah, I have noticed that. Now, I, I don't have the right ammunition necessarily to argue, but although I try. Um, I just don't retain facts very well in the midst of a weird encounter with someone who's a climate denier. But um, <laughs> when I've come into those situations, it is just shocking how you can just see in their face there's this strange – stare where they're like, please stop trying to convince me. I cannot change yeah. my mind. 
Well, and that actually relates to one of the key things I have learned over the past 10 years. As a scientist, we are actually convinced that truth and data and facts are all that we need to convince someone. Right. But I've learned that the issue of climate change and many other issues, that is not the case. And so nowadays, when I talk to people who are not on the same page on this issue of climate change, I start with our values. And I start by sharing the things that matter to me, that I care about, that I love, whether it's the fact that I'm a mom or that I live here in Texas or that I love doing outdoor activities or even just that I care about the economy. Right. And I t- share with them why climate change threatens those issues that I care about and they do too and then go on from there. Yeah. No, I think that's very wise. And I think it's also in my experience and this is part of what we try to do here is when we're sharing something to try to share it from our own experience because it's just more credible rather than mm-hmm. my just lecturing and and you probably have found this too in your teaching I don't know but if you talk from what the, the facts that come from your own experience and you relate them to real world things that uh whatever people just tend to go oh yeah I hear you <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and oh my gosh. So I, I I really love, I have not read your book, but I love the concept and the title is um, A Climate for Change, Global, what is it, Global, I can't, I can't even remember how to write, Global, global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. Thank you. I can't read my own yeah. chicken scratch. <laughs> um, but I love the, I love the, and I think that's part of, you know, why you were such a great choice for that particular episode to go to someone from this faith-based point of view and say, I am someone that has, a, you know, a belief in God and a faith, and and I too believe in global climate change. Well, interestingly, I actually wouldn't even say I believe in it, because for me as a scientist, it's not about believing. It's right. about looking at data, looking at information, and then making a decision based on information. Right. Um, now, I recognize for many of us it's tough to do that, but that's part of what I try to do, too, is bring that information to people so we can make up our own minds based on facts and data rather than just opinions. Right, right. Yeah, and that's why I need people like you because, really, I'll just I, – I just don't have an answer. I'm like, yeah, I just – I know I know, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> well, let me recommend – and you probably already know this – but there's this website called Skeptical Science. And these guys answer every single question about climate change that you have ever thought of and about 200 that you haven't. Wow. They have an iPhone app. So when you're sitting at the dinner table with Uncle Joe and Uncle Joe's like, oh, I heard there was more polar bears in in the the Arctic now, so so much for global warming. You can actually go and they will have an entry for more polar bears in the Arctic and the answer to that question. Wow. Oh, I'm totally getting that app. What a great idea. It is. So, I mean, and you you said to me before we started talking here on the air that part of your work is as a climate projection person. uh, (laughs) I'm not not saying it right. But (laughs) but you do climate projections for professional large agencies, cities, communities, uh, whatever you want to call it, governments, um, you know, based on your scientific background. Yes. Um, my, my professional expertise is not so much in talking to people about the reality of climate change. It's working with organizations that are already fully cognizant of the fact that this is a huge problem, and they are desperate for information on right. what to do about it. Right. Um, if, if we see you know, the, the risk of heavy rainfall events increasing 40 
60, 70% as they have in the Northeast. You don't have to convince anybody that there's an increased risk of flooding. They're living it every day, and they right. want to know how much worse is it going to get. So if I'm going to build a new storm sewer system, how big does it have to be? And that's the type of information that we generate for people. Wow, that's really practical stuff, isn't it? So It is. I think being practical is good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bloomberg after Sandy really got very practical and said, hey, you know what? This is an issue. We have to look – as New Yorkers, we have to look at this. And he started to do some things – to, um, I, I think, plan. I don't know if you ever worked with Bloomberg, and now, of course, he's not mayor anymore, but I'm hoping this new guy is still doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've worked with him on the Risky Business Report he did afterwards, but there are so many great experts in New York City. I mean, New yeah. York is very fortunate in terms of the scientists they have there. Um, you know, we're a bit thinner on the ground here down in Texas, but <laughs> we're doing our best. Well, but they have you. <laughs> I'm only one person. I'm working on cloning, but I haven't quite got there yet. Ah, well, aren't we just so lucky to have you working from wherever you're working in this virtual world? We get to, you know, read. Um, you do have a website, KatherineHayhoe.com, correct? I do. I try to collect all the videos um, on YouTube and Vimeo and things like that so people can get a chance to hear some of the stuff I have to say, not just about you know, how we know climate is changing, but also about those things we're just talking about. You know, if I'm a water manager, an engineer, or a public health person, or a city planner, what do I need to know about climate change, and what information is available for me to use in my job? So, why don't you toss out a couple of statistics that, that, um, you know, maybe, um, uh, I don't know, what, what, what are the most like popular shocking statistics that you've been dealing with lately? Well, so often we measure global warming in terms of the temperature of the Earth about two meters above the surface, because that's where our weather stations take their observations. Okay. But if you're really talking about global warming, we're talking about the warming of the whole planet, right? not just the air about the top of our heads. <laughs> so, for those of us who are a little shorter than two meters. Yeah, um, I am. Yeah, me too. Uh So one of the shocking statistics I think that most of us don't usually see is the increase in the heat content of the entire planet. Hmm. When we look at how much heat the ocean and land surface and all the ice have been absorbing over the last 50, 60, 70 years, the ocean is currently absorbing 20 times more than the land, the air, and all the ice put together. So when we look at the Earth's temperature... And when we say, oh, it's getting warmer by looking at the Earth's temperature, that is literally the tip of the iceberg of global warming. Oh. Ooh. The rest of it's all underwater. Oh. oh. And, and, yeah, that's not so good. And, and <laughs> yeah, and, you know, then you've got these, um, the, the weather patterns are shifting. And, of course, when then you have a severe winter, people are like, hey, global warming, what's up with that? And it's, we're having all this snow. I know, and the fact of the matter is, is that as the world warms, more water evaporates in the atmosphere. When a storm sweeps through, if it's below freezing, it picks up all that moisture and drops it as snow. And so we actually expect snowfall to stay the same in some places and even increase in others under global warming, which I know sounds really weird. And that's one reason why I and many scientists feel like climate change is a much better name for this problem. Yeah, Global warming is like one symptom. Yeah. You know, and one symptom of something that's so much bigger than just the warming of the planet. But let me give you another hopeful statistic. Okay, good. Good. I like that. <laughs> after I've, yes, after we've thoroughly been depressed by the other one. That is the fact that if you look around the world, the number one question I get when I talk to people here in the U.S. is, well, what about China? 
In other words, we could do everything imaginable, but we're still screwed anyway because of China. Well, here's the hopeful statistic. <laughs> okay. China is number one in the world in wind and yeah. number two in the world in solar. Yeah. That gives me hope. If these other countries are doing far more than we are here, it's about time for us to get on board. Don't you think? Yeah. Uh, well, so that is hopeful. And, um, you know, yeah. Now, I was going to ask you something else. Oh, um, about weather. I just I was thinking about because we lived through Sandy. I lost two cars. We had a huge tree come mm-hmm. down and, and take out two of our cars. So, I mean, and I'm inland by, you know, 30, 50 miles, somewhere like that. So I'm not even on the ocean. I'm not even on the shoreline. So I guess we can expect some more severe storms because of the same reason, you know, the winters might be a little bit more snowy because of the moisture and the different patterns. Is that true? Well, what we expect depends on the type of storm. So, for example, for hurricanes, hurricanes get their energy from warm ocean water. So the warmer the ocean water, the stronger the hurricane. Oh, yeah. And we are seeing not more frequent ones, but stronger ones. Yeah. Um, For snowstorms, it really depends on the place. Some places along the fringe that Sometimes get snow, sometimes don't. They might get less snow in the future, but other places like the poor city of Chicago that we did a study for, they were they were all like, "Well, you know, our summers are going to be terrible, but at least we won't have as much snow." Yeah. And the sad was, I'm sorry, you're probably going to get about the same amount of snow. Oh <laughs> man! And that was really tough because that's a lot of their costs, their operating costs. Yes. Um, so, and if if you look at thunderstorms, um, if it gets warmer and more moist at the same time, then we could have more frequent storms. But if it gets drier, you'd have less. Um, so it really depends on what type of storm you're looking at, and that's what you know. That's what we we climate scientists do. We try to figure out all these fine nuances of if you live in this part of the country, why should you care about climate change? How yeah. is it going to impact the things you care about? And the answer is different depending on where we live. Right. Because the ways that we're vulnerable to climate depend on our environment. Like here in north, you know, northwest Texas, we don't really care about sea level rise. But down in southeast Texas and Houston, they are all about sea level rise. Well, yeah. I mean, and you would be, and maybe in California, be more concerned about drought conditions, right? It's, yeah drought and El Nino, because that brings your floods, alternating oh. with the drought. So that's why I think it's so important to not um, think of this as a global, oh, it's just getting warmer and we can cope with the warming. Yeah, It depends on the places where we live. And I think the most important kind of take-home message, the most important thing to stick in our heads is, in 99% of the cases, climate change is going to hit us where we are already vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're already water short, that's where it's going to hit us. If we're already in danger of coastal flooding, that's where it's going to hit us. If we're already vulnerable to flooding or extreme storms, then that's where it's going to get us. Yeah. Well, but I guess because folks like you are doing this work, there is hope for us to have greater understanding and to prepare in ways, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we may not be able to stop some of the momentum of the change, but we can also adapt, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I get so hopeful when I meet with people who are actually putting this information into practice. Um, I get to meet next week with all of the sustainability directors for cities around the U.S. and Canada. They are doing their best to make sure their cities are prepared for climate change so that we can see this thing coming. The way I think of it is, for so many years, it's like we've been driving a car looking in the rear view mirror to figure out where we're going. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So by providing this type of information, I'm actually enabling our cities, our state and federal agencies, um, 
all, all of our organizations that do future planning, we're enabling these organizations to take their eyes off the mirror and look down the road and say, there's a big curve coming up, and we're going to prepare for that curve 20 or 30 years ahead of time. So when it comes, we'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, that is hopeful. I, that's, that's, I, that's good news, and wow. Well, I'm so grateful that you were able to take some time because I do know that you're very busy. My gosh, we need like, yeah, we do need like 50 of you at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking me on this program because what you do is so important too. We need we need to know more about this issue, and we need to know more about what we can do about it. So, well, thank I, you so much for what you do. I hope that we'll get to talk to you again soon, Catherine. Likewise. Hope you enjoyed that as much as they did. Please visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. For more fun podcasts and information on the Green Divas and low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green. You've been listening to the Green Divas radio show. Be sure to look for this and other Green Diva Network podcasts on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, Swell Radio, and Spreaker. Get social with the Green Divas on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Subscribe to the Green Divas YouTube channel to watch them in action. And for all the latest good green news, visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com.